Hey, Jenny, how are you? I'm good. Um, thanks for joining me for this interview today. Uh, so Mike is the CEO of a startup called Fluidform 3D. Uh, why don't you tell us what is uh, Fluidform 3D? Sure, sure. So Fluidform is a startup uh, based on technology at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, we licensed the technology that was developed in my co-founder Adam Feinberg's lab, the Regenerative Biomaterials Lab. And basically, uh, it's a technique called fresh 3D printing, uh, which allows you to 3D print uh, materials that otherwise don't uh, cure rapidly. So think things like collagen and other proteins, uh, as well as uh, other materials outside of the field of tissue engineering. Uh, we've been in business now for about two years and are uh, working on uh, both the launch of our first product, our life support product, which is in the market today, being sold to biomedical researchers, as well as a more industrial application, which we'll be looking forward to launching next year. Thank you, Mike. And also, I want to thank you for uh, agreeing to speak to us um, as an entrepreneur, uh, this biofabrication entrepreneur, during our conference in June. Um, and we actually did an interview with you a while back, and I, I have some follow-up questions. Um, uh, one of the, you know, when we talked about what is the, how do you feel about your current role at Fluidform? And you said that, uh, let me read, in the past 60 years a medical device, because you have a, a long history in medical device, um, the medical device industry has been focusing on creating mechanical replacement of the body but now bioprinting is changing that approach. Um, and you said this is something called biology-focused approach. Would you like to expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, I watched the movie The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and in that movie, at the very end of the movie, you see Luke Skywalker's hand, and they're, they're replacing it with a mechanical hand after it was cut off. And later in college, when I learned that there were fields of engineering focused on making devices like that, that's what got me hooked on the med device business. Um, since the 60s, when you know, Earl Bakken and Medtronic first started and a lot of those sort of early stage, early age medical devices came to be, uh, most of the focus had been on mechanical replacement of body function. Right? So whether it was something like a prosthetic hand whether it was something like an artificial heart, which is actually where Adam and I first met one another, was working at a company working on artificial heart development. Okay. Um, it was always focused on the mechanical solution, right? The body's job as having a mechanical function, pumping blood, moving things around, filtrating blood, etc. cetera. Um, what's really interesting to me has been this intersection of the mechanical function that has to happen with the biology, because as we all know, in, in biology, the solutions are a lot more elegant than the solutions that come out of mechanical engineering, right? So when you say something like, the heart is just a pump, it's not very satisfying to those of us who have one of them inside and it's keeping us alive every day. Um, there's a lot more to it in terms of what's going on inside the body. And so now the field of tissue engineering has come so far with when I was an undergraduate in college, uh, the very first papers on the field were being written. And I remember reading them and finding them fascinating. Um, well, it's been 20 plus years since then. And now we're actually seeing advances that are showing the ability to recapitulate this kind of function, to say, let's have 
you know, things that beat like hearts should beat. Let's make things that open and close like valves should open and close. And that's really exciting to me because uh, when we can start to take advantage of the way biology works, we no longer have the compromises of things like, you know, battery life and materials compatibility and things like that that we do with all of these mechanical devices. When we can tissue engineer products, uh, the sky's the limit, right? Now we can make a real, real impact in human health. Yeah, I almost feel like we're in a new era, you know, coming from, de I guess, decomposing everything into parts and making it into a machine, a robot, and now we're actually growing stuff. Um, I think one remarkable, uh, I would say, uh, publication that you guys have it was last year where you're on the cover of Science Magazine with this giant heart valve, uh, and that was done with the flesh technique. How is that valve different from what the valves we have nowadays? It's a great question. And, you know, we're, um, we're very proud of the work that was done by our co-founders. Uh, the, the two lead authors on that paper, Andrew Lee and Andrew Hudson, uh, did phenomenal work along with the whole team at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, it was using fresh as a technique to make things that actually work like the way they're supposed to work inside the human body. The heart valve was one of the no most notable um, and what that heart valve really did for the very first time was to demonstrate that you can engineer a heart valve out of collagen that behaves the same way you would expect a heart valve that's currently transplanted. Right? So in, you know, current, heart, current heart valve replacements, you get either mechanical valves or you get these valves that come out of pig or cow donors. Uh, the pig or cow donor valves can be folded up on a catheter some of them, and they can be actually transplanted minimally invasively, so it saves you from having to crack the chest open. Our goal is to be able to engineer a valve that can do the same thing. Now, you might ask, well, if the pig and the cow valves are good enough, why would you go through this length? And the answer is there's actually a lot of patients who those pig and cow valves don't serve very well. Uh, the most notable are patients like pediatric patients who are going to grow. And so if they have a congenital heart defect or where that needs a valve replacement, they're in a really difficult spot because whatever you do to fix a problem now is going to require another open heart surgery some number of years into the future. We actually envision and showed for the first time with some data in that paper that you can create valves that can be cellularized and can grow with pediatric patients. That would make a huge difference for a lot of people. And that's the sort of thing that we think this technology can enable. Yeah, I mean, I remember asking you a question is whether or not we're at that stage where we can cellulize the valve. Um, and you mentioned this, one of the reasons we want to cellulize these valves is because they can grow as a patient. Um, is there any other reason for it's better to have a cellulized valve, like, you know, for uh, immunology perspective, uh, coagulability, that kind of perspective? Oh, it's a great question. One of the things that I think... Um, we will definitely see studies on this decade is younger patients. So today, if you are, you know, 35, 40 years old and you have a bad infection that, that lands in your valve and your valve needs to be replaced, you're going to get a mechanical valve because those have been proven to have the durability that it takes to last out the rest of your life. Um, the transcatheter valves don't seem to have that, that same sort of you know, 40-year durability that the mechanical valves are known to have. The question we can't answer is, will valves that are tissue engineered, whether they're cellularized or not, mm -hmm. actually be able to improve that durability, right? So when we take a porcine valve, 
we accept whatever we get out of the pig and we test to make sure that it's going to hold up. But when we can engineer it, we can engineer it for strength. We can engineer it for durability. We can use all the engineering techniques that have been developed over many years. So now we don't just have to accept what we get from the pig. We can actually design it. Uh, again, we can design an acellular valve that hopefully can be more durable. And we can also look at things like cellular valves for certain patient populations that might benefit from it. Yeah, I'm really excited the potential of your technique and your product can hold. I mean, aside from the technical potential, technical benefit to the patients, we also don't have to sacrifice animals for these biological-based valves. Um, there are a lot of bioethics behind that discussion, which I'm not going to into, but I'm really looking forward to have some kind of um, biosynthetic valve that we can customize for our patient. Now, although the picture is very... Uh, exciting. I know there are a lot of challenges in the field, um, and we've talked about it before. There is regulatory concern. There's also production side of concerns, how to scale this up. Um, uh, and then also commercialization. Obviously, the first two probably are going to go first, and then we have to, then we go into commercialization. So uh, that, that conversation was almost a year ago, or yeah, any, any progress in any of these areas that we can be hopeful for? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of progress happening on a number of fronts. You have, um, you know, some really good signs out of the FDA on the willingness to be working on next-generation therapies. And we've seen that both with their work with certain cell and gene therapies, mm -hmm. for which there was no regulatory framework not that long ago to having a regulatory framework. And those discussions continue to develop as we start to talk about tissue-engineered products. So I'm encouraged by what we see out of the agency, and we continue to work with really smart folks at you know, the Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute and their regulatory expertise, so that it's not you know, any one company trying to solve the problem for themselves, but rather for the industry. Um, when it comes to scale-up, you know, we're really excited about some of the things that we've been able to work on that actually give us a lot of hope for being able to take things that work once and then make them work many, many times. And that comes down to some, you know, simple things like the, you know, the mechanical movements and the deposition of 3D printing all the way out to, you know, being able to source and supply raw materials, right? So we're looking at the whole value chain. Now, we're still a ways away from needing to hit those kind of scale-up points because we don't have you know, a whole bunch of different therapies that are already in animal models and heading towards first-in-human testing. Once that happens in another year or two, I think you'll really start to see the scale-up process take off. But we're really encouraged by what we've seen, and I think that there's a lot of reason to be hopeful right now. And, and you've been working with some pharmaceutical companies, right, or, um, or medical device companies. We've been uh, working with a few different, you know, both pharmaceutical and medical device companies, yes. Um, are you commercializing any of the technologies that you have right now? You know, we're still in earlier stage work than that. We're still working out a lot on the R&D side. Um, oh. We do believe that there's you know, an opportunity to be moving towards more commercial products you know, in the, the next couple of years. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that tissue engineering is a field that's been through more than one hype cycle. Right, tissue engineering was on the cover of Time Magazine in 1997 as we're all going to have organs soon. Um, and so we, we like to make sure to, to take a bit of a deliberate approach and remind ourselves that there's a reason this is hard. Right? Biology is hard. The work has to be done. 
by smart people going through smart processes with really good partners. And that's the kind of work that we're doing right now. So we, we do try to avoid the hype cycle. We try to avoid the, uh, the hyper-enthusiastic, you know, we're all going to have hearts, livers, lungs, and kidneys soon kind of mentality. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, we're going to see really, really incredible progress over these next few years. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember last time when we were publishing your, uh, your, your interview, you requested me to change the title of blog from bioprinting a heart to bioprinting heart components to be more precise on exactly what you guys are doing. Um, that said, I think media is an interesting element in this whole, you know, what's supposed to be a very scientific process and almost impossible sometimes to separate that imagination uh, from people. You know, people want to be hopeful and they kind of just want to, want to go for that. Um, that said, you know, the recent COVID-19 crisis that we're facing, you know, there's definitely a lot of hype in the media, uh, you know, from the regular 3D printing side, there are a lot of people helping out, but, you know, exactly how helpful they really are, we don't really know. Um, I think the intention is very good. Um, my question is, what are your thoughts on the after-coronavirus era is going to look like for the R&D funding and for the fundraising process for startup like you guys? Because I have to say, it's pretty high risk to be in biofabrication and tissue engineering startups. Because the duration is very long to see any kind of return. Um, any thoughts about that? Sure. You know, I think even before COVID-19, um, there's really only one industry that's consistently been able to generate investment with a very, very long time horizon return. And that's been biopharma. Right? Biotech startups are able to raise $100 million Series A investments even though they're not going to have a drug in the market for seven, eight, nine years. That's the only example of that. And, you know, I, I, I know several biotech venture capitalists. I've worked with those guys over the years. Uh, most of them are, are locked in and laser focused on, you know, molecules that attack targets and the basic drug ability questions and how that process works. So, you know, cell therapies and gene therapies, yes, but tissue therapies, not so much. It doesn't really fit the way that they think about the world. And what that means, I think, for most entrepreneurs thinking about this space is if your hypothesis is we've got a 10-year journey here, and at the end of it, there's going to be a pot of gold at the rainbow, you're probably going to have a very hard time raising money. I think that was true before COVID-19. My suspicion is it's probably even more true. I actually think that represents opportunity, though, because I think that as long as tissue engineering as a field is positioning itself as, you know, hearts, livers, lungs, kidneys are the, the only viable thing that we can do, well, we're, un we're underselling the value of tissue engineering. There is a lot of problems that can be solved long before we get to fully reconstituted organs. And... I would encourage any entrepreneur who's looking at this to think long and hard about what are the problems that we actually can solve that have meaningful output in the life cycle of a typical VC file. Because if you can't take an innovation and turn it into something commercial in less than seven years, you're going to have a very hard time drawing the attention of VCs. 
And where that leads us, which was the start of your question, was if you can't draw the attention of VCs, you better have a darn good grant writer on your team because you're going to have to write a lot of grant applications to do the heavy lifting. The bottom line is with SBIR grants at $250,000 max for a phase one, it's really hard to do real science of any quantity at those kinds of increments. So, you know, I remain optimistic that as we see, you know, organizations like BARDA and others, you know, NIH, NSF, et cetera, responding to calls for COVID, that as we start to solve those problems, I hope that Congress and the government recognizes that we need to continue this kind of funding of innovation in order to attack these other bigger health problems. Yeah, I think part of it is definitely a lack of education at all levels. Um, I think I think you personally, I mean, I read your uh, interview from uh, with us last time again, and you, you mentioned education like multiple, multiple times, starting from K-12 in school. And I believe in Congress, in our government, that there's a lack of understanding and also vision of this field, which is really not helpful uh, for the progress. I mean, also VCs, venture capitalists, um, they have a, like a set playbook already because it's a copy and paste process and they have a pattern recognition um, like anything else. So they feel safe if they see biopharma and something they already generated a return with certain level of risk. And here comes tissue engineering, bioprinting human body parts. It just sounds like sci-fi in many ways. Um, I think it does. And I think that's actually the reason why it puts the onus on the people who have skin in the game, folks like our company and lots of others, and people like yourself, to be the torchbearers, to, to actually carry that message out. It's part of why we're so happy to work with an organization like 3D Heals to help get the message out to so many people to hear the kind of impact that these technologies will have. Because like you, I agree, if we can connect with and inspire you know, leaders, investors, folks in government and others as to just how far this field has come and just how close we are to revolutionizing health problems and creating entire new industries. And I think we can go a long way. It's just going to take a mobilization of those people. You know, it was less than 10 years ago that the Department of Health and Human Services estimated that the field of tissue-engineered organs was going to be a $300 billion market in the U.S. alone. Now, I can think of a very, very small number of $300 billion markets that the government is estimating will exist and that doesn't exist today. But I'll tell you, smart investors, they want to be in that place. Thank you, Mike. I know you're a, a lifelong entrepreneur and you're taking incredible amount of risk, um, but you know, obviously that's driven by passion and enthusiasm and your, your um, you know, desire to help humanity in general. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to more of this kind of discussion with you during our conference where you can share your ups and downs as entrepreneur, uh, either with Fluidform or before that. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to it. And thanks for joining me today for this uh, very brief interview. Thanks. thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.